0: Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window Podcast. We take you inside the biggest stories at the clubs of world football that matter to you. And we also give you insight and analysis on the big issues affecting the game. Today is Question and Answer. Your questions answered by us by Duncan Castles, our Pundit Extraordinaire, by me, Ian McGarry. Um, We shall be looking at three questions today, but we start with some news regarding um, Manchester City and Leroy Sanney. Duncan, what can you tell us? Yeah, this is, um, I think,
1: an expected development from the story we broke on the podcast a couple of weeks ago that uh, Manchester City uh, were worried about Um, whether Leroy Sané could be persuaded to stay at the club. Um, They'd made him offers of a new contract. He only has two years left in his current deal. He has refused to accept any of those offers. Um, They want to retain him, uh, for understandable reasons, Um, the the third uh, best uh, provider of goals and assists combined in the Premier League this season. Um, outstanding pace uh, you just have to watch and play to understand that Manchester City wouldn't want to lose him however they've made a pragmatic decision that if they cannot persuade Sani to sign a contract this summer that they will have to consider selling him um, while his value is high and replacing um, with one of the candidates as we we um, describe being Sean Felix at Benfica um, If you look at Leroy Sané and look at the options available to him, he wants to be a top player at a top club, so that limits uh, the number of choices. He's um, a German international. Um, As we mentioned at the time, Bayern Munich are in a rebuild process and particularly need players on the wing. Um, So the, the obvious deduction there would be that Bayern Munich would be interested in signing a player of his age, just 23, speed, ability, and also being Germany international. That is exactly as things have panned out. Um, I've just been told that Bayern Munich have uh, contacted Manchester City uh, to express their interest in the player, and they expect to be allowed to speak to Sane's representatives um, to discuss the possibility of him moving. There's no agreement on a fee as yet, um, as far as I'm told, I think this is um, its one of those situations where the clubs are being pragmatic. Manchester City are being pragmatic and, and now Bayern Munich are exploring the deal to find out if Sunny would be interested in moving to them, if they can sell the club to him. And I think that will be a difficult aspect here because, as we outlined in the podcast, he's not an easy player to manage Um Lots of fallouts and difficulties with Pep Guardiola. Um, he's had problems with uh, the German national team manager, Joachim Löw, which led to him being left out of their World Cup squad. So I think Bayern Munich very, will very much have to sell this project to Sani and make him believe that if he goes there, he will be central um, to their Champions League campaign next season and that he will be. I don't know if Bayern Munich are guaranteed places to to players, but. Um, Sani will want assurances that he's going to be a first choice um, in a way that he hasn't been at Manchester City, and in a way that's uh, annoyed him uh, this season. So um, this, you know, very much how transfers play out. You 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 speak to the player and their representatives, find out what they want, um, see if they're a match to the club, find out what their financial demands are, then if all those Um, boxes are ticked, then you start um, negotiating transfer fee with the current club. And as I say, City's position is that they want to retain the player. So um, it's quite possible that Bayern Munich come with an offer to Sani, and then Sani uses that as a negotiating tactic uh, with Manchester City to say, look, um, I've got one of the top clubs in Europe who want to sign me and give me what I want in terms of playing time. Uh, You will have to reconsider your offer to me. Um, to match or better what what uh, Bayern Munich are presenting me, and give me guarantees about playing time, so uh, definitely a situation to watch. And it, and this is the kind of move that has repercussions throughout the, the entire transfer market. If Sani moves to Bayern Munich, you're talking about a very significant transfer fee, possibly um, enough money for Manchester City to um, buy Jean Felix from. Uh, from Benfica, where his release clause is 120 million euros, although I'm sure Bayern will try and get cheaper. But you've got to to say that Bayern have already put 80 million euros down to Atletico Madrid for a defender this summer. So their negotiating position in terms of not wanting to pay high fees is compromised by that. It also has implications for other players in the market like Nicola Pepe um, who has been a target for Bayern Munich, remains a target for Bayern Munich, who Bayern have offered uh, Leo 60 million euros for, which does not meet Leo's valuation. Um, if Bayern remove themselves from that race by deciding that Sani is the player they want rather than Pepe, that opens a door for other clubs. One of the clubs um, interested in Pepe, or have expressed an interest to Leo is Manchester United. I'm told that last week a phone call went in to one of the Leo directors to inquire about the cost of a transfer for um, Pepe, um, who's been outstanding in the French division this year, um, scoring goals and creating goals, a great deal of pace, actually a very good fit to what Manchester United would need on the right wing, um, and to ask about... Whether he would be available for sale, so um, Manchester United have shown their hand there. They've not gone any further. There's, I'm told there's been no bid, um, and there's been no further contact with Leo since that inquiry. But again, um, the market's beginning to move. Um, clubs like Leo. Who have players like Pepe who they have, they know they will sell this summer, they've very openly advertised, set a fee for him, um, would like to have as many of the big clubs bidding for him as possible, are waiting for um, one of these big clubs to make a move and inject money into the market so they can spend and recruit elsewhere and those movements have implications for everyone else.
0: As always, our professor of breaking news, Duncan Castles, is first with the story, and we will keep you up to date with that in uh, our Friday podcast coming your way, obviously later this week. Um, let's move on to our first question of the this. Your questions answered, Duncan. It comes from Russell Isaacs at Russell Twenty Three on Twitter. Manchester United, will the director of football make any difference besides assist Oli with recruitment? Will it change the way the club is run? And why the delay in having one appointed? What do you think, Duncan?
1: Yeah, that, that's a question or a group of questions that gets uh, entirely down to the, the, the key point here. Um, and what we've said on the podcast before that Manchester United have been briefing that they wanted a director of football for a long time now and been kind of proposing it as a as a, a solution to their problems and as a, as a game changer for the club in terms, not just of recruitment, but in particular um, in the area of recruitment and uh, to, to make the, the use of the, the massive financial resources the club generates each year more efficient and, um, and get that rebuild done properly this summer. They've been briefing that, but they haven't put anyone in place. Uh, they're still talking to candidates now, um, as I said um, in the you know the previous section, um that phone call going into Leo um for Nicholas Pepe is being made by um one of Edward's Edward right-hand men who's been involved in recruitment um for several years now, uh, Matt Judge. Um and essentially those individuals remain in control of transfers. Obviously, Olegal and Solskjaer has an input uh, in this process and is being asked who he would like and asked um, if he approves of deals. But basically, we don't have that experienced um, top quality transfer market operator um, who you would obviously want to bring into a club like Manchester United because they've had such a poor record in the transfer market essentially since Sir Alex Ferguson and David Gill left. You'd want that person there but they're not, they haven't been interviewing those kind of individuals. Um, there's a sense that uh, you, you've seen names like Rio Ferdinand mentioned um, for the job. There's a sense that they want to employ an individual who has strong Manchester United connections, um, a former player ideally, who would be a good um, voice if, for the club in the media, but not necessarily um, from the, the people they've been interviewing, who, who, yes. individuals who've done this job before. Now, that's going to make it very difficult for the person coming in. If they decide to appoint a former player um, with no experience, as an executive and no experience of of doing deals in the transfer market. It doesn't mean they're not capable of doing it. It doesn't mean they won't do a good job, but it's going to be very hard for them um, coming into a club, a dysfunctional club like Manchester United with a squad that is in a horrendous mess and needs very aggressive work done on it to get that right. In their first summer, um, when they're not even going to be in place, um, I guess, at best, until the end of May. And, but that, even that would, would require an accelerated appointment process. Um, and I think, Ian, you've got some information on one of the, the candidates um, who, who Manchester United are considering uh, for that role.
0: Yeah, uh, look, it's, I don't think there's any secret in the last few days that um, Darren Fletcher, uh, former captain of Manchester United, uh, who has been released by Stoke City as a player, <clears throat> has been talking to the club. About a role in recruitment. Um, I'm not sure that that necessarily is the case that he has been offered the director of football role, but certainly has been talked about in terms of his ideas with regards to future recruitment for Manchester United. Um, I'd say this uh, a, you know, his massive experience in terms of playing football um, allows him uh, certainly to be able to judge a player properly. Um, and I'm not uh, in any way judging, saying that he can uh, magically come up with four or five uh, candidates to join Manchester United this summer who will transform their fortunes. However, I think what the difference of having someone like Darren Fletcher in place um, would make is that you take away the, what we've seen uh, to be or perceived to be the um control over recruitment which Edwardward and the Glazers have um exercised in the past three years um and in signing players who possibly are not suitable to the club or indeed not even in well effectively able to integrate into the team that they have already. So I think Darren Fletcher's experience um, he's he's very intelligent, articulate man as well he knows the club inside out as you mentioned Duncan so I think having his advice at least regardless of what position he may take up would be a huge advantage for Manchester United in terms of trying to improve the recruiting policy and, and take the club forward in this next transfer window um, but as we discussed I think a couple of weeks ago about director of football roles um, You need to have administrative experience and you also need to um, be able to uh, prove your worth in terms of transfer negotiations. Now, so many times in the Sir Alex Ferguson era, um, all it took was a meeting with uh, the great man, uh, with a player and his parents. And effectively, it would be, oh, yeah, we'd love to sign for you because you are Sir Alex Ferguson. Now, Manchester United have lost that aura not just in terms of their manager, but also in terms of um, the club itself having lost its luster of being a serial winner. So um, I think what someone like Darren Fletcher would bring to the club is uh, a sense of their history, tradition, um, but also someone who's very down to earth, someone who can um, be, I think, realistic and also very charismatic in terms of negotiations with potential signing targets uh, and their families and agents, etc., which is also very important, as we know, and um, in a situation or uh, in a climate where Manchester United, uh, I think, will struggle to attract the best players in the world, someone like Darren Fletcher will be able to um, explain the project going forward, the the future ambitions, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and allow the a player to um, see what might be the case for him in the future, rather than simply, oh, you know, we're going to be competing for a Premier League or Champions League in the next season, which clearly they're not. So um, I think someone with Fletcher's uh, ability to communicate very well with other players um, and someone who has, as I said, a history at the club and is able to say, look, things might not look so rosy now, but let's, Look at a four-year, five-year contract where he will be competing Champions League, Premier League, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, would be a very, very um, slick move for United, uh, and obviously he would have a, a very um, easy relationship with or Solsha. But I think at the same time, um, given what the difficulties have been for Manchester United in terms of recruitment and, the, and who makes decisions ultimately, uh, anyone going in there, Fletcher, anyone else would have to have uh, a clear mandate and authority with regards to what they were expected to do and what they were allowed to achieve in terms of signing players. There's no point in in putting someone in place and saying, you have now this position, but then taking away their authority to actually make the final decision based on um, their um, uh, research and intuition and uh, experience alongside the coaching staff only for someone like Ed Woodward or the Glazers to say, no, that's not the player we want or covet. So I think it's a difficult um, dynamic which needs to be overcome with regards to how United move forward. Um, if Fletcher or someone like him was to take the role, I think they would have to have very, very clear parameters set out in terms of what they were allowed to do uh, and what they were able to do and mandated to do in order to make sure that Their job wasn't just some kind of, you know, uh, filibuster type role where uh, it was a PR thing rather than an actual um, job that they they were able to do properly. Because let's face it, um, what has become a pun over the last five, six years at Manchester United is that manager after manager have been thrown under the bus by a recruitment policy which has not been properly thought out or indeed uh, executed by the people who are making the decisions. So that needs to change. Um, and I believe that that is certainly going to be the biggest issue for anyone going in there uh, to be interviewed as director of football. Uh, is exactly what their authority is to sign players. So uh, I, I don't think it's going to be an easy appointment for Manchester United, even though it might seem on the surface to be that, given that they're looking at former players and people who are obviously very loyal to the club. But at the same time, um, it's a it's a huge opportunity for anyone. Um, my understanding is that Darren Fletcher is um, doing his coaching badges, for coaching badges. He's not quite at UEFA Pro license yet, and actually his ultimate goal might be to be uh, a coach rather than as a, a director of football. But it's not a bad way to start your career after playing, if indeed he um, is offered and takes that job.
1: I think it's. This is the thing. I've talked to candidates to become directors of football at some of the biggest clubs in Europe and have them explain to me why they haven't taken jobs. And the answer, the reason for not taking a job is usually they feel they do not have the authority and do not have the resources available to them or the club is in such a complicated state that their reputation will be on the line they go there and they're pretty much they felt like they were being used as a figurehead to throw to the fans saying uh we are appointing this individual he's got an amazing track record at other clubs um he will solve everything for you and then a year down the line um he's not the solution and he he gets um uh, thrown out of the club or 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 exits the club of his own volition i mean a good example there would be monchi at uh yes roma who um, voluntarily left Roma essentially before um, he was pushed out because uh, the fans were extremely unhappy with the deterioration in performance this season after they reached the the Champions League semi-final. And from what I gather, a lot of the failures there were not down to Monchi. So that would certainly have to be a consideration um, for any former Manchester United player um, being interviewed by the club at present under these parameters because there's a real danger there that you're being put in to be the man to speak to um, the press and to be you know thrown under the bus when the next set of transfers don't work and, and um, instead of them being attributed to the manager as they have been as we've seen with the past um, three managers they get attributed to the director of football and, and possibly the manager in tandem. Um, There are other sides to the role, and and we've obviously seen Jose Mourinho talking about uh, club structure and talking about how he felt that Manchester United lacked a bridge between uh, the manager and the board and a bridge between the manager and the players, a, a person who was able to intervene with the player's uh, so it wasn't the, the situation that the, the manager always had to reprimand them and always had to bring them in line and saying that Manchester United lacked that. From that perspective, I would see someone like Darren Fletcher um, being an ideal candidate for that kind of role. And I think um, from my experience of him, I don't know him well at all, um, but from interactions I've had with him and, and from pe- talking to people who've played with him and worked with him, he's an, a very intelligent and and most importantly, a very diligent individual. So um, I can see the attraction to United from that perspective. I wonder if the solution for them um, would be something like the structure that's in place at Paris Saint-Germain, where they hired a very experienced technical director, Antero um, Enrique, from uh, Porto, and have put an assistant technical director, a former player, Maxwell, um, and beside him, and Maxwell's been instrumental in some of the transfer deals using his um, his personal connections uh, to work on deals like Neymar's uh, to Paris Saint Germain, and I, I, I'm told is popular within the camp and also popular with the the Paris Saint Germain hierarchy. So. Perhaps that would be a more um, strategic way for Manchester United to go, would be to hire a former player as an assistant to a highly experienced operator who knows the transfer market in and out. But as I say, there's absolutely no sign that that, that's what Manchester United are trying to do. As we said several weeks ago, they've been offered um, the the chance to interview very um, experienced, serious um, directors of football with, with good track records and declined the opportunity to do so. So I suspect they will eventually go down this route of hiring a former player um, and, uh, and hoping, I guess, that it works out for them.
0: Well, so from one club who have made mistakes in terms of recruitment, and we all know where they are, to another um, who've actually done very well, and um, I think everyone who listens to the Transfer Window podcasts will remember Duncan Castle's being very, very praiseworthy of Liverpool's Um, recruitment policy and indeed the uh, people they employ in terms of what they do next. We've got a very good question from um, one of the worst uh, handles we've had, worst fan base in sports, um, who comes in at at severe warning. I've no idea what that is, but please get in touch with us if you want to explain. Um, And that is, Duncan, can Liverpool hope to keep up this level of consistency next season or will they have to go back into the market? This seems like an outlier.
1: Well, I think a severe war- warning is it's probably a Johnny McFarlane pun, isn't it? I think we should ask whether it's that's one of Guns. What's going to
0: do with whether oranges?
1: Multiple Twitter accounts that he uses to boost his social media profile. Um, oh, and since, I see, since, I since see. it's a question about Liverpool, I mean uh, the evidence is there. The evidence. Is there. The
0: evidence is there, indeed. But what? But what about their recruitment? Do they need to add to the squad to? to keep up with Man City or indeed overtake Man City? Because let's face it, that's a daunting prospect.
1: I think, um, look, Liverpool have had an exceptional season. Um, They almost won the Premier League. They are in the Champions League final and they're favourites for the champ to win the Champions League. So um, they've got, as you say, they've got a lot of things right for a number of years. They've spent their money well. They've sold very well. Um, Philippe Coutinho to get the amount of money that they've got got out of that deal, um, in the fashion they did was a great piece of business. And we now see Barcelona, um, basically scapegoating Coutinho for their season and putting him on the market. And uh, I think there's zero chance that uh, Barcelona will recover the, you know, the initial hundred and twenty million uh, euro fee that they they paid Liverpool for the Brazilian. So. They they have they've used the resources and the resources are 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 large now. I mean, we we shouldn't uh, think of Liverpool as an under-resourced minnow in European football anymore. They're well up there in terms of their spending, high in wages. The revenue is in the top ten in the world. Um, they are a proper force in European football transfer market. I think the worry for Liverpool is there's been a lot of talk after this Premier League season about how close they were to winning it. Um, you know, the idea that it came down simply to that um, goal line technology decision um, in the 18th minute of the game against Manchester City, which should have put them 1-0 up, um, that being the difference between Uh, them winning the title and not winning the title, which is obviously a ridiculous argument because it was the 18th minute of a game in January, the first game in January um, at Manchester City Stadium. Um, The assumption that everything else from that point onward would have stayed exactly the same had they drawn or won that game is just daft. But I think more importantly, the idea that it will only take a little bit to... um, surpass the standards manchester city have, have set this season and then they can win the english title is a dangerous one because as i've said multiple times in this podcast i think that points total flatters liverpool yes they've been exceptional but if they you know they got eight points from goalkeeper errors bizarre goalkeeper errors they got a number of refereeing decisions in their favor um, they had a, you know that I, I think their points total is at least 10 better than it should have been, um, and and that's the analysis. If you're inside Liverpool, that they should be making. not we're only one point behind. We almost did it. It should be realistically, we're probably ten or twelve points behind Manchester City. We can hope that Manchester City drop off. Um, you know that that kind of. We've won two titles in a row, and we've we put so many points together both seasons in a row, so we don't need to do quite as much next season. So they can hope that Manchester City don't perform as well, particularly if their focus is on the Champions League. But I think realistically they've got to be thinking of of making up that 10 points rather than making up one point. If you look at their squad, um, it's very good, but it's not as deep as the rivals. Um, They've been uh, fortunate in that they managed to keep their fronts three fit for almost the entirety of the season. It's only in these last few weeks that we've seen um, Roberto Firmino missing for a sustained period and obviously losing Mo Salah for um, the the Champions League semi-final return, which is, as you suggest in the podcast, might in, in a bizarre way have helped them in terms of the, the tactics in that game. But they've had those, uh, you know, the, their attack is about those three and it's about the two fullbacks. That's That's where Liverpool's goals come from. Um, And uh, Andy Robertson has been fit all season. Um, Trent Alexander has been fit most. Alexander Arnold has been fit most of the season. They have got cover for Alexander Arnold and Joe Gomez, but Joe Gomez they prefer to play at centre back and is not good attack as an attacking force. As Alexander Arnold, they don't have any cover for Andy Robertson. They obviously need to to buy there. I think they need at least one more um, high-quality forward, um, and I believe that they are they are actively trying to recruit in that area and may put down a very big transfer fee for um, a player of similar type to the ones they have, i.e. extremely fast, can score goals and create goals. I also think they've got a problem in central midfield. Um, I think there's a, a real lack of creativity there. Um they will be stronger because Fabinho should be a starter um, every game next season. He's he's gone through his adaptation process in the Premier League. Um, he is definitely an improvement over um, your favourite Jimmy Milner. Um, miles better than uh, Henderson. Um, a better pass of the ball and as good defensively as as all of them. So so that will improve the midfield. But I think they need um, another creative option. Um, in the, you know, one of the number eight positions. Maybe that can come from Nabi Keita having a better season, but you have to say that Keita disappointed in his first season. Um, it could be he's like many foreign players, he needs a whole season to adapt to English football and the second season will be the one where he explodes. But um, that would be the, the other area where you would say Liverpool would not want to depend on Keita having a good second season. They'd, they want, they'd want to get a player of his type who can cover a lot of ground and create and pass his way through the kind of defences they sometimes have a problem breaking um, to give themselves more tactical variation. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's, there's significant work to be done there. And um, what they need to avoid doing is resting on the laurels.
0: I agree with that, Duncan. Um... I think it's slightly kind of, uh, it, I guess, conclusive of what an incredible season Liverpool have had, where they shared the golden boot with two of their players, Mane and Salah, with Pierre um, in terms of goals scored in the Premier League. Um, but I still think, and this may be something which you know our listeners will find a, a little bit kind of um, weird on the basis of what we just said that Mane and Salah are joint top scorers in the Premier League. I still believe. The glaring uh, deficiency in this Liverpool team is an out-and-out striker who scores 20-plus goals in a season because clearly if they had that, they would have won the Premier League this season because they would have outscored and indeed outpointed Manchester City. And we mentioned um, a few weeks ago on the podcast that they have an interest in Timo Werner at RB Leipzig and that um, interest has increased um, I'm led to believe in the last two weeks. Uh, indeed, it's going to be encouraged by the fact that Bayern Munich have yet to make any kind of um, inquiry to Leipzig with regards to the German international striker. He's someone who can lead the line, um, someone who gives a, a, a basically a, um, a different dimension to that um front three where Firmino is effectively plays as number 10 and the uh, Salah and Mane play and come in from the wings um, to score goals. I think Werner would be uh, more of a point striker for them and someone who the exceptional talents that Liverpool have in terms of providing assists would allow them to see uh, a much better goal return in terms of uh, striking options throughout an entire season. So for me, in, re- in response to our listeners' question, uh, I see the recruitment of that that striker, that point striker, which Liverpool don't currently have. Um, Manchester City have it in Aguero. Um, Spurs have it in Harry Kane. Um, and I think that they need to acquire someone like Werner who would give them, uh, I think, a plan B as well. I think there's a, a brilliant plan a at Liverpool where they play the trident of the the front three of Firmino Sala and um, Mane but they don't really have is um, a, a, an alternative we've seen it very very lately in the Champions League and Premier League with Divock Origi leading the line and we've seen how successful that's been but I don't think anyone's under the um, sort of in- interpretation or indeed uh, to think that Origi would be the solution to the number 9 position um, as a striker at, at Liverpool. Um he's a player who's been there a long time, he's been alone as well. Um whereas if you bring in someone like Timo Werner, um he is someone who is effectively at his well, you know, he has proven himself in the Bundesliga at a very high level um and in international football as well, with regards to his ability to score goals and convert chances. So for me, I I think Werner um or a player like him would be the most um, advantageous addition to Liverpool squad.
1: Yeah, I, I, think, I think Liverpool are a paradox in some ways in that they don't have any problem scoring goals in total, but they do have problems in particular matches. And it's just that variation of attacking options and variation of creative options that if they can add, uh, then they can go to the next level.
0: Yeah, and that's where obviously we need to go because clearly the 30-year wait for a title is... The one that bugs them the most and um, the one that they want to resolve as quickly as possible and have come very close this season, as we know, to, uh, to doing so. We're going to move on to, I think, one of our favourite subjects on the Transfer Window podcast. All of you listeners out there will be very familiar with um, our relationship with the super agent Mino Raiola. Um, lovely man that he is, uh, very rich but has recently received a ban, um, which amazingly coincides with the summer transfer window. Because why would you ban an agent uh, outside of the window? Why would you do that uh, unless you were trying to prevent him from working? And um, we've got good questions here. I'm going to read two of them from our very um, good friend Brett Ramirez uh, and also from Eugene at EU understroke rabbi saying, um, what are the repercussions of, uh, for Chelsea and Mino's ban? Um, and also from Brett, what led to R- R- Riola's ban and what does it mean for Pogba and Delict, etc. So, Duncan, I know that you are up to date on this story. Can you just give us a, an idea and the, indeed the facts regarding Riola's ban and uh, what it means in terms of players moving this summer who are under his tutelage?
1: Um, well, it's a, it was a ban initially um, handed down by the Italian Federation. Um, who did not, um, in their press release, detail the reasons why they had banned Raiola. Um, Raiola um, has gone to press and said that he believes the Italian Federation Uh, were discriminating against them on the basis that he'd he'd criticised the Italian Federation for the state of of the game in Italy and the national team, um, and because he'd spoken out against their uh, failure to take um, proper action against various um, racist incidents in Italian football recently. Um, That Italian Federation ban was then broadened um, by FIFA, I think a day later, um, to a worldwide ban. Um, again, no specific explanation given as to um, what Raiola's transgression had been. Um, but the, the story from Italy is it's around a, um, a 16-year-old at the time, uh, Italian player Gianluca Scamaccia, who was moved from Roma um, to PSV Eindhoven in Raiola's um, home country um, in January 2015 as a 16-year-old. And that might strike you as quite a familiar scenario, given that um, one of the most famous deals by Raiola in English football was to take Paul Pogba um, away from uh, Manchester United to Italy um, under freedom of contract. Uh, rules um, for minimal uh, training compensation payment against the, the host club's will. And the story is Roma objected to that and um, uh, had the, the deal investigated and that's what he's been punished for. Um, in terms of the ramifications for the transfer market, I actually don't think there are any. Um, I think this is effectively a slap on the wrist and it's a, a public statement of discontent by the Italian Federation and FIFA with an agent who has uh, wound up a huge number of people in football, um, a huge number of football clubs. Um, I've had a hard time with them. Manchester United, the obvious um, one of them in, the, in the, the case of Paul Pogba's exit from the club, although they then got very much in, back into bed with Mino Raiola to bring him uh, bring Pogba back to the club several years later, making giving Raiola the biggest um, commission on a single transfer deal in the history of football. Um, also took Henrik Mkhitaryan and Zlatan Ibrahimovic in the same summer, all um, Raiola uh, clients. Um, I've spoken to people at Ajax, um, where um, Raiola has a long history of representing the players um, and heard them moaning. Um, and complaining about uh, his influence at the club and uh, losing players um, last summer uh, to Roma, um, and he's also involved in as the, the one of our questioner asked the the De Ligt transfer. He's not the sole agent on that deal. He's one of two agents working on that deal, and that will give you the basically the answer to the, the the key part of the question: Is does it stop him? from making money from this transfer market? And the answer is no, because if De Ligt um, makes his decision on which club he wants to go to and Ajax do expect him to leave this summer and are um, basically working to get the best transfer fee possible from that deal, then um, De Ligt's other agent will be the man who signs the papers on that deal. And there'll be an agreement in the background where the commission um, gets... Uh, sent to Royola's company um, or his percentage of the commission gets sent to him. And uh, essentially, any agent could do the same on any deal. As long as he has someone he trusts, um, uh, Just it could just be the lawyer or the, the parent of the player in question, um, to sign the paperwork um, and, and get involved in all the formal documents that go alongside an international transfer and a contract at a new club. Um, and that person agrees to remit um, a percentage of the commission to Raiola um, subsequent to the documents being signed when those payments are received from the clubs involved. Then Raiola can effectively negotiate the deals in the background, uh, work as he normally works, uh, make a huge amount of money. And, and I would expect him to make tens of millions of euros from, from this transfer window, as he has done in uh, as sequence of summer transfer windows um the ban disappears um on the 9th of august so um he would actually be able to do deals to spain um out once the ban has has dis- has um, been fulfilled um after that date and not have any of these complications with a, with a secondary agent anyway it's only for england uh, english transfers um before the, the deadline, the earlier deadline in the Premier League, that this this would, in principle, have an effect on him. But I think the, the real effect is zero. It's, it puts his name in the, in the public domain. It expresses FIFA and the Italian Federation's discontent with him. Um, it damages his reputation, his public reputation a bit, but I don't think it makes any difference whatsoever in terms of deals.
0: So all you listeners out there, the moral or stroke immoral of this story is that if a small Dutch stroke Italian man approaches you in the street and asks you to sign a contract on his behalf, selling a player for an excess of hundred million euros for which you will receive a handsome fee just for your signature, then <laughs> think very carefully about what you do and who you're getting into bed with. But be sure of one thing someone else will sign that document and that transfer will go through and i'm sure that we'll be talking about that in this summer with regards to paul pogba matt de and many others as well
1: um, I, think, and on that- uh, I think ian i think that's the first time i've heard Mino Raiola described as small um you are for, you forgetting the uh, the pizza man reputation there
0: oh indeed i am indeed indeed and in which case i i bow down to that and say He's uh, the super size of agents and pizzas, um, and on that note, we're going to shift our attention uh, on this Wednesday transfer window podcast to the absolutely legendary and not ever to be overshadowed by the BAFTAs Donkey <laughs> Awards uh, for for this week. And we have decided, and I think you'll all agree, it's an absolute classic of the genre that it's going to be the Atom and Humber Award for Worst Signing of the Season. For those of you who are not familiar with Atom and Humber, please go onto Instagram. They have their own account and they happen to be Alexis Sanchez's dogs. Now, I'm going to leave that with you. You're intelligent people. You know why we're doing the Worst Signing of the Season Award decided by Alexis Sanchez's dogs. Um, <laughs> Duncan, I'm going to open the golden envelope and give you the uh, nominations. I would like you then to explain why you think uh, each of them deserve the, uh, the legendary golden statue with your head on it. And, and then indeed give us a winner. So just let me do this now. Hang on a second, people. There we go. There's the envelope is now open. I'm just going to be very, very quick with this and say that Atom and Humber, remember, Alexis Sanchez's dogs, have nominated. In this order, Denis Suarez of Arsenal, Kepa Arazabalaga of Chelsea and Dominic Solanke of Bournemouth. Duncan, please give us the background uh, and indeed the uh, validation of these nominations as well as, of course, the winner of this week's donkey. I um, I, I bow
1: to the intelligence of Alexis Sanchez's dogs here. Um, uh, Denis Suarez, uh, I think, could have been a good deal. Um, Everyone I talk to knows him at at Barcelona is a very talented player but the question Mark they had over him was whether he was in the, the mental position to establish himself at Arsenal after a, a series of, of bad injuries and, and, and could get in the team and it's turned out he hasn't been in that position he has, he's barely played and uh, a significant amount of money has been spent on someone who's not contributed there so good candidate Kepa, most expensive goalkeeper in the history of football I'll just leave that there. Um, watch. If you've seen him play this season, you'll know what the issue is. But I think the winner has to be um, Dominic Solanke, who, um, who went to Liverpool from Chelsea, um, barely played, has been built up as, the, as a great English talent um, since he was a teenager. Basically, a young teenager. Chelsea gave him large contracts to uh, be part of their academy. Um, Liverpool gave him a large contract to not contribute very much in the, on the playing field. And then Bournemouth, having seen all that, decided to spend £20 million on uh, on bringing him to their club. Um, what's he contributed at Bournemouth? Uh, Ten Premier League appearances, um, a total of 341 minutes on the pitch, no goals yet, um, which is pretty much par for his career, I'm afraid. Um, so he wins uh, the Alexis Sanchez This is Dog Award as the worst signing of the Premier League season.
0: Absolutely magnificent. There we go. Um, Dominic, I know you're listening. And uh, the donkey will be wrapped up in uh, lots of cotton wool, like you have been for many years and sent to you on the south coast. Now, um, with that stunning revelation of the uh, um, donkey award, we're going to close this particular transfer window. Um, if you want to continue the debate, uh, which we love you, obviously, to do, and indeed questions answered is one of our um, great uh, highlights of the week, then please get in touch with Duncan at Duncan Castles, with me at Garbo SJ. We have our own Transfer Window uh, account at Twitter, which is at Transfer Podcast. And in this particular instance, I'm going to give you at Atom Humber Officia 1 which is Adam Humber's <laughs> official Instagram account. If you want to question the Donkey Award, please take it up with the dogs and with Alexis Sanchez. Um, if you have enjoyed the podcast, please give something back. Um, we, uh, if you can uh, go on to iTunes and uh, give us a five-star review, then that helps us to expand our community and obviously um, helps us to reach more people in which case we all can enjoy the debate much more with more opinions and indeed more um, humor i suspect um, i'm sure atom and humber are getting their non um sort of uh, uh, sort of opposable thumbs right now onto their smartphones to join us in the debate uh we will be back to fulfill your podcast needs this friday um with the normal friday podcast look out for that it will be an fa cup special Uh, given that we've got that game at the weekend. But for now, all we have to say is thank you for listening and we will speak to you on Friday.
1: Do we know, Ian, if um, Atom and Humber are on a social media interactions win bonus as everyone else at Manchester United is?
0: (laughs) Do you know what? We must ask that question of the great Ed Woodward. So this podcast has not come to a close. Indeed, we're going to go now and find out if Atom and Humber are indeed on a social media interaction bonus we'll bring you the result of that when we speak to you on friday and as i said thank you for listening thank you to duncan to bring that up and we will speak to you on friday